Hello and welcome to MMA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manuel Galarza. Today we're talking about the full card breakdown for UFC Fight Night Qatar vs. Chikadze, also known as UFC Vegas 46. This is the first UFC event of 2022, coming up on the 15th of January with a 4 p.m. Eastern start time. 15 total bouts in the card, no championships on the line, but we do got some exciting matchups. We'll talk about each fight, one fight at a time. We'll break it down for you, talk about the fighters, their background, uh, talk about the betting implications, the money line, prop bets, and give you as thorough a breakdown as we can. We take a deep dive here at MMA Fight Club. There's no easy breakdowns here. We go deep, real deep. So, with that said, before we jump into that first fight, I got something for you guys. We're going to give away three $25 Amazon gift cards to three lucky listeners here on YouTube. And here's what you got to do. Pretty simple. Go to the comment section and write up a simple vow of generosity that you can do for a random stranger this holiday. Examples being, let's say you see somebody who's having a hard time carrying some bags, elderly person, give them a hand. Maybe live in a city, buy a hot cup of cocoa or, or a hot cup of coffee and give it to somebody maybe who's homeless who could use it. Um, let's say you live in an apartment building, bring a newspaper for a, a neighbor of yours, um, but something that's not for a friend or a family member. It's got to be a kind gesture, random kind gesture for a random stranger, okay? So don't do something crazy. Don't go put yourself in danger. And obviously don't do something unrealistic. You're not going to give away like a car, like a, a Rolex watch. Something kind and simple, write it up in the comments section. I'm going to read through all these ideas, these vows to do something kind during the holiday season, during the you know, season of giving. Um, I'm going to pick the three that I feel are the most creative, the ones that are most realistic, um, and just the most creative, right? So three random people are going to win. Go to the comments section. Go ahead and write up what you're going to do. Now consider this. Even if you don't win a $25 Amazon gift card, you know what you do win? You win a thumbs up in life, right? You're doing something positive for a random stranger. You should feel good about yourself. The karma energy is going to come back around. Start 2022 off doing something nice for somebody. So with all that said, let's jump into this full card breakdown with the first fight in the prelim card. Here we go. Next up, we got a middleweight bout between two American fighters, Jamie Pickett and Joseph Holmes. Joseph Holmes goes by the Ugly Man, which is a weird nickname. He's not an ugly looking dude, but that's his nickname, the Ugly Man. He's 7-1 overall. He lost his pro debut, and now he's whipped off seven straight wins. He's from Texas, originally from Montgomery, Alabama, actually. 26 years old, 6'4", and high with an 80-inch reach. He trains out of SFS MMA. As for Jamie Pickett, who goes by the Night Wolf, he's 12-6 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Hails out of Wilmington, North Carolina, 33 years old, 6'2", and high with an 80-inch reach. He's out of Port City Sports Performance. So height and reach-wise, very similar. A slight height advantage there for Joseph Holmes by two inches. Um, Age-wise, there's definitely a youth advantage there by about seven years for Joseph Holmes. Now, looking at topology, the votes are coming in for Holmes, 82% to be exact. Only 18% of the votes are coming in for Pickett. A little surprising. You know, Pickett has more UFC experience. He has, I believe, a more well-known name in UFC circles. Uh, but Joseph Holmes is impressive, has a high winning percentage. We're going to talk about it. I like Joseph Holmes to win the fight. He's a slight favorite of the money line at minus 135, plus 110. You can get Jamie Pickett. I just like Holmes a lot. I think the guy's got a lot going for him. We're going to talk about that in detail. Looking at the striking numbers here on the two fighters. Pickett's landing just under three strikes per minute, absorbing 4.37. So not good ratio there for Pickett. For Holmes, we don't have numbers on his striking output or input because he's never fought a UFC fight. This is his first UFC fight. For takedown offense, I will say when you watch film on Holmes, he knows how to take down his opponents. He's a former college football player. He's very athletic. He's got good submissions. I like that he uses wrestling and takedowns and cage grappling to set up his submission opportunities. For Pickett, who's defending takedowns at a 64% rate, that could be a problem for Pickett. That could be the path to victory for Holmes. Now, Pickett's averaging just about a takedown and a half per 15 minutes. Will he try to take down Holmes? Maybe. It's not a big part of his game. Matter of fact, I noticed that Pickett 
Once round two sets in round three, the takedown attempts that he does make, very half-assed, like bends at the hip, doesn't have the energy level, um, more or less is a distraction, just sort of change the pace up, but his takedown offense, I believe, diminishes you know, significantly as the fight goes on. So as for Jamie Pickett, he was born in Jacksonville, Florida, grew up in a rough situation with his family. His father, unfortunately, was incarcerated when he was growing up. His mother was suffering from you know, drug addiction. He gets raised by his grandparents. At some point, the mom tries to come back in the picture. The state gets involved. Then him and his brothers are separated. He ends up living on one side with the grandparents. His brothers live on the other side with the grandparents. So a lot going on there as a kid. Um, a lot to deal with at a young age, you know, eight, nine years old when him and his brothers were separated. Seven and three amateur record. He started his pro career one and two, so a little bit of a rough start for him. He fought a next-level fight club promotion before UFC. He earned his UFC contract in 2020 via Dana White Contender Series. That was his third time, though. And I saw that. I'm like, I didn't even know the guys can go back three times. So anyway, he was three times through Dana White Contender Series. The first two times didn't really go that well. 2017, he lost to Charles Bird via round one submission. 2019, he lost to Punahale. Soriano via decision. At least Soriano is in the UFC, so it's decent, I know. But he three times through, three times a charm. He got the contract the last time. He's 1-2 in the UFC currently. He lost his debut in Njukoi um, via decision in 2020. The biggest win of his career for Pickett has been Laureano Starpoli via decision in 2020. The most notable opponents for him, Tafan Njukoi, Jordan Wright, Punahele Soriano. He lost to Jordan Wright via round one TKO. That was a rough one. Lost via decision to Soriano, as we mentioned, in 2019. And then 2020, lost to Tafan Njukoi. The positives I like about Jamie Pickett, he does have experience, more experience than Joseph Holmes in the UFC. He is very athletic and very quick, and he's an active fighter, averaging just about two fights per year. My concerns with Pickett, the finish rate is slowing down a lot. In his first nine fights, he had eight finishes. Think about that, right? Now, here we are in his last six fights, he's been in the decision four times. The finishing rate is definitely slowing down. Part of that's competition. Um, I think part of it is also age. At 33, he's clearly in the peak of his you know years age-wise for middleweight. So I don't know if that's a factor. It's not the biggest punching power in the world. Jimmy Pickett is athletic. He looks like he's, you know, brick house, man, built amazingly. But again, just to, you know, double down, the finishing rate is going down. Poor wrestling attempts. I mentioned this earlier. I feel like at some point in the fight when he gets tired, he just bends at the hips and kind of like goes for like a lazy takedown, but doesn't look like he's really actually interested in getting a takedown, just more to change up the pace, maybe get some space from the guy in front of him. So if Joseph Holmes crowds him, you can expect Jamie Pickett to pull off like a half-ass takedown attempt in round two, round three, but I don't even think he's actually really going to try to get it. Um, he struggles against better competition. I mean, that's the best way of putting it. When Jamie Pickett goes up against guys that are a little bit of a higher level, he struggles. Um, that's just the bottom line. Um, his chin, I'm not sure if that was a one-fight thing with Jordan Wright. Jordan Wright really jacked him up it was very early in round one he didn't show good survival skills which i mean who am i to talk i'm over here talking behind a microphone about survival skills in the cage but you know what i mean like he wasn't able to recover he didn't grapple he was getting pounded and jordan wright just kept putting it on him putting it on him eventually the fight gets stopped so i'm not sure if that's a chin issue survival issue it was something though um inconsistent is a nice way of putting his last six fights he's three and three in his last six fights he's a 500 fighter right now he's had some rough losses the charles bird loss that was years ago, but consider this. Charles Bird is 10-7 overall and on a three-fight losing streak in the UFC. So it's not like Charles Bird is a very good fighter, um, at least not lately. Joshua Williams, the guy is 2-1 overall in his entire career and hasn't fought a match since 2014. Well, he lost to he, Pickett lost to him earlier in his career. He also lost to Tyler Minton, a guy who hasn't fought since 2015 as well. So two of his first like losses, the early ones, not good opponents, not good fighters, did have three losses in the amateur as well, which is not the end of the world. But I'm just saying this guy... He's not the kind of guy flashing around a high winning percentage. That's a nice way of putting it, right? So looking at Joseph Holmes from Montgomery, Alabama, standout high school football player. The family moved around from 
Georgia to Texas to Atlanta. Uh, to, they were in Montgomery at Alabama at one point. MNG ends up getting back to Texas. They set some roots. He goes to high school there. Uh, falls in love with football, gets a scholarship, gets a scholarship offered to several schools. Um, nothing big time, like not like USC or Texas, but still some smaller Division II level schools. He signed a scholarship to Arkansas Tech. About four or five of his teammates from high school all went there as well. So it's like, you know, good comfort zone for him. Goes off to college, goes to Arkansas from Texas, and he redshirts his freshman year. And if you haven't been through that process of redshirting, which I haven't been through personally, but having been on campus with football teams where, like, at Nebraska, the football team is like 200 freaking dudes. And uh, a lot of them are redshirting freshmen. And that's a weird situation to be in. If the program is smaller and not really, you know, tight-knit group, you can get off, you know, on the wrong track. And that's what happened to him. He ends up losing his scholarship, never even plays it down. Redshirts his freshman year, hanging out with the wrong people, grades slip, loses a scholarship. Parents can't afford it for him to stay in school. So he goes back home. Next thing you know, he's working for UPS, 9 to 5. And he's like, damn, this sucks. He notices somebody wearing an FS or SFS, you know, MMA Academy shirt, whatever. And the rest is history. Um, he mentioned how when he was working at UPS, though, he was competing with his coworkers to, like, stack the boxes and who could pack the most boxes and whatever. And uh, the competitiveness in him was still there. And so he found that through mixed martial arts. So, for you know, for Holmes, he's a transplant. Used to be a college football player. That didn't work out. Kind of hit the reset button here. Seems like this is a good part, too, for him. I worry about some of those guys who, like, go right from football to, to mixed martial arts, and it's, like, not a good transition. For him, it's been a slow transition. It's been a process. I think he's very ready for this, and his fighting style looks good. Like, it looks like he's not, like, a raw fighter, like a football player trying to fight, you know? Um, anyway, um, so he went through that process, grew up a lot through that. His family was there for him. He lost his pro debut in 2019 in Bellator 218. So he does have some Bellator experience. He's 1-1 one one in Bellator. He lost that first fight, and man, since then, seven straight wins. He's 2-0 in LFA. He's 1-0 in Fury FC. So notably that he fought in the promotions that were pretty reputable before he came into the UFC. I mean, Fury FC is good, LFA is good, and Bellator everyone knows about. So the positives I like on Joseph Holmes, as I'm already not giving you more positives, he fought, um, he fought decent-level opponents the last few fights. LFA, whatever else. The first one's eh. Um, we still haven't seen him fight somebody notable. That's going to be a question mark here for Joseph Holmes. With Pickett, we've seen him fight more notable guys like Jordan Wright, whatever else. For Holmes, we just don't know, right? But for Holmes, one of the things that's super impressive, and I got to get this out right now, 100% finish rate. The dude has finished all seven of his wins. Yikes, right? And it's not just by some like flash TKOs. What surprises me about Holmes, when you watch him on film, he looks like a guy who would be a slugger. Nah, man, he'll wrestle you. He'll get your back. He'll submit you. Almost half of his finishes have been by submission. So he mixes it up. He's got a well-rounded game. It's, it's weird because when you look at him, he just looks like he's going to come in there like a barbarian and just be you know, slugging. But no, nah, man, he's got smooth technique. He's clearly been training, good coaching. He knows what he's doing in there. The guy's a very, well, very skilled fighter, and it makes sense he's slightly favored here on the money line, even as his first UFC fight. Um, he, has improved, he has improved significantly in his last few fights. I will, I will implore you, please, watch some fights of Joseph Holmes from like three, four years ago. And watch right now what you're seeing. The dude has literally made massive improvements in a short period of time. For me, that shows, number one, he's in the gym. He's busting his ass. Number two, that he is young in this game. Okay, so he still has room to improve. You know, he was, again, a former football player coming over to this. Started mixed martial arts well after high school, even after his little college experience. Didn't have, like, a high school wrestling experience. Wasn't doing karate at, like, age 10 or whatever. But you can't see that on film. It looks natural. It looks sharp. It looks clean. And it looks like he's making massive improvements. I like that. He is a very underrated grappler, chain wrestler, solid wrestler. He uses it to get to submission. When I watched film on him, I kind of was like scratching my head like, how did I forget about this guy's ability? Because the film don't lie. The eye in the, eye in the sky does not lie. He's a good wrestler, 
how many submission guys do we watch or talk about where like it's like oh they're good at submissions but they can't wrestle so they can't get to position to actually get a submission right Nah, man joseph holmes has the whole package i think this guy's gonna make a run i think 2022 we find out more about who joseph holmes is i think he's got a level of swag that's like you know it's it's unique um doesn't get too high or too low after the fight's over calm cool and collected um, like a guy who's on a mission, like a guy who appreciates what's going on, like a guy who's got a good foundation. You can see like this guy's got a good bedrock right now that he's working off of, you know. Maybe that's the family part of it. Maybe that he's got a good family, and that's helping him to sort of stay grounded. So I um, love the wrestling here for Joseph Holmes. Now, my concerns with Holmes, and there's not many. How does his cardio show up, or how does his cardio, you know, um, how does that look in round three? You know, how how does he do against a guy who pushes the pace against him? How does he do against someone who's going to get in his face and, and maybe clock him? Now, does Pickett do all that? Not really. Pickett's more of a circler. He's going to circle. doesn't really command the center of the cage anyway. Now, Pickett will do a little chain wrestling on the cage, but that's going to be a mistake here against Joseph Holmes, who I believe is a little bit stronger against the cage, a little stronger in the grappling exchanges. And with Pickett, he tends to wear down. I mean, everyone wears down. It's a fight. You know, obviously, your energy level at, at minute one versus the last minute of the last round is going to be a little different. But with Pickett, it shows more, right? Does that make sense? It shows more than a guy like Holmes who – one more thing about Holmes – the massive improvements he's made recently, one of them is the calmness. Not coming out there and being overzealous and looking for like a KO in the first, you know, 30 seconds. He'll take it if it's there. But the point is he's not going like too hard. He's not like, you know, a kid chasing out a run a cookie. He's going in there. He's patient. I don't know what that even means, a, ch a kid chasing around a cookie. You get the damn point. He's going in there with some patience. He's got a game plan. He looks mature. First UFC fight, this guy's going places. Jamie Pickett, love him. Nothing against the dude. Um, would love to interview him sometime. Tremendous story, man. The guy came from out from under, considering everything that happened to him as a, as a child and what he was surrounded by. So kudos to Jamie Pickett. And if he wins the year, I'm not mad at the guy, but I think this is for Joseph Holmes. One more thing about this fight. At minus 135, ton of value here. I'm going to take this for at least two to three straight-up units. This is one of my most positive or confident plays in the card in terms of the money line for a pick to win. I like Joseph Holmes a lot. Pound it out, guys, because by the time this actually comes around in two weeks or so when this actual event happens, that's not going to be at 135. It's going to be somewhere like minus 1225 to minus 1, minus 250. Once people start looking at this guy a little more closely, Joseph Holmes, he's legit. He's legit, okay? And as for Jamie Pickett, he's legit too. <laughs> he's just not as legit, I believe, as Joseph Holmes. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Up again, a bantamweight bout between the Brazilian veteran Ronnie Barcelos and Victor Henry, the newcomer here to the UFC. Victor Henry goes by La Mangosta. La Mangosta translates to the Mongoose in Spanish. Henry is 21 and 5 overall, 4 1 in his last five fights. He hails from Los Angeles, California. 34 years old, so making his UFC debut a little bit later than most fighters, but nonetheless, it's better late than never, right? He's 5'7 in height. We have no reach number on him, but I would guesstimate based upon watching his film, his reach is comparable to that of Ronnie Barcelo, so about 67 to 68 inches is what I would imagine for Victor Henry. He trains out of UWF USA. As for Barcelos, he's 16-2 and two overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. Born and raised in Rio de Janeiro, he's 34 years old, 5'7 in height with a 67-inch reach. He trains out of Rizzo RVT. According to Tapology of the public vote here, it looks like Barcelos is getting a lot of the votes here. Almost 90% of the votes here are coming in for Barcelos, about 91 92%. No love here for the American Henry. I'm going to try to give you guys at least some reasons to take a double take here with, with Henry. Um, I do think Barcelos wins the fight. I do think he's the more superior fighter right now. 
But when you look at Victor Henry's tapology, there's some names that come up, some people he's beaten that you're like, whoa, UFC level guys. So we'll talk about it. Now, according to the striking numbers here in both fighters, we don't have striking numbers on Victor Henry because it's his first UFC fight. As for Barcelos, he's landing 5.39 strike per minute, absorbing 4.36, landing 1.79 takedowns per 15 minutes, and defending his takedowns at a 92% rate. So good takedown defense. Um, in my opinion, he's not active enough with wrestling. I mean, it's averaging just under two takedowns for 15 minutes, which is okay. But he's a very good wrestler. doesn't seem to use it enough, at least for my liking. Let's talk here a little bit more about these fighters in detail here. So first off, let's talk with Ronnie Barcelos. He was born and raised in Rio de Janeiro. He started grappling and wrestling at the age of five. Uh, reason being is that his dad was actually a very good freestyle wrestler. So his dad got him into it. He was an amazing amateur wrestler. So like amateur meaning like probably I would equate that like to college here in the United States, like going up through like 18, 19, 20 years old, five-time Brazilian national wrestling champion, two-time South American, all of South America wrestling champion. So wrestling wise, very good. Um, but when you watch him fight, it's frustrating. He doesn't use his wrestling enough, at least not for my liking. I wish he would use it more. He started his pro career in 2012 in Shudo, Brazil. Um, notable opponents for him, Khalid Tadha, Tamir Valiev, and Saeed Nurmagomedov. Jesus, tongue twister there for me, right? Um, so not big time names for Ronnie Barcelos. He's still definitely climbing his way up the ladder at 34. It's like now or never. Um, I'd say his toughest opponent to date was probably Tamir Valiev, the fight that he just lost, which we'll talk a little bit about that as a close um, close fight. One judge actually had it as a draw. Um, but anyway, the point is, those are his most notable opponents he's fought against. Some positives on Ronnie Barcelos on his fighting game and what he brings to the table. He's fought solid competition, five UFC fights so far, and an ultimate fighting fight. Um, quality losses. His last loss against Valiev, listen, that was a tough loss. One judge actually thought it was a draw, um, so it was close. Uh, all three judges actually had him winning round two, and one judge had him winning round two, 10-8. He, he, like, messed up Bali in round two. He knocked him down clean twice in round two, and the ref was just about to step in there and, and stop the fight. So it was a very quality loss from the standpoint that here's a guy who's 18-2 and two in Valiev, who's 3-0 in his first U three UFC fights, um, you know, brings a lot to the table. So, you know, bottom line is it's not the worst loss. Quick striker and combination puncher. One thing about this guy, you could not tell by watching him fight that he's a former wrestler. His striking technique is beautiful, and it comes in combinations. It works straight down the pipe, no looping nonsense, whatever the case may be. Um, so I like his boxing very good, on, very good on his feet. He pushes the pace and controls the center of the cage. That's consistent with all his fights, so I do like that about him. Now, with a fighter like Henry, Henry will try to push pace sometimes, but I think he won't be able to do that against someone like Barcelos, who really owns the center of the octagon. He's only been stopped one time in his entire career, and it was via a rear naked choke, so he's never been knocked out. Now, some of the concerns that I have with Barcelos, his boxing defense in the fight versus Valiev, one of the reasons why he loses that fight on the scorecards is because when he's trading with, with Valiev, he leaves himself too open. I'd like to see him shore up his boxing defense, just meaning like not defense from the standpoint of getting hurt, but just his guard, not get hit, hit so much and so cleanly when he's in his trading situation. So just have to increase his, his, his defense. That's all I would say. Um, forgets his wrestling in BJJ. That's a big note for me on my notes here. He just doesn't wrestle enough. Here's a guy who's a South American, you know, multi-champ and Brazilian national champ, whatever the case may be. Wrestle more. Wrestle to take over the round. Wrestle to win the round. If it's a close round, wrestle. So I want to see him do more of that. He could be a little more active to my liking. This is his second fight this year, and he fought only one time in 2020. So, you know, I'd like to see Barcelos be a little more active. And the fact that he's getting older, he should be more active, right? The expiration date is coming up soon. A low finish rate, and at least recently, recently. He's had some finishes before in his career, but his last three fights have all gone to decision. 
He was a minus 225 favorite against Valia of his last fight, and he lost that fight by decision. So, again, over a 2-1 to favorite coming to that fight, and he lost. He was also a minus 435 favorite against Taha the fight before that, and he won by decision, which is not comfortable, right? A minus 435 favorite suggests he should be finishing the fight. So, anyway, on to Victor Henry from California. He fought in Ryzen, actually was like 2-0 or 3-0 in Ryzen, some nice wins. He is the former LXF champion, which is a, a belt that he won two months ago, October. He won that belt, um, so I guess he had to surrender that belt since now he's in the UFC. His most notable opponents to date, this is where it gets a little bit weird now. He fought Kyler Phillips, like 9-2 and two Kyler Phillips, who's in the UFC, and he won that fight by split decision in CXF 15 back in 2018, so just three years ago. So... Like, consider this. Another thing about this fight. This fight was after Kyler Phillips had already won on Dana White's Contender Series. So, like, the year before this fight occurred, Kyler Phillips wins on Dana White Contender Series. First round finish. He ends up, for some reason, I don't know why, not fighting right away in UFC. But the point is, Kyler goes back to this promotion, CXF, faces off here against Alex Henry, and loses by split decision. Okay? Now, Kyler Phillips only has one of the loss in his entire career. And that was by decision to rally on Paeva. So, if you look at the situation there... Kyler Phillips is a UFC fighter. He has two losses in his entire career. One's against another UFC guy, and then against this guy, Alex Henry, right? Did I say Alex Henry? Victor Henry. Jeez, excuse me. All right. Um, another win on his tapology, Anderson Dos Santos. So say what you want about Dos Santos, who's 21-9 and nine overall, so not the greatest of records, but it was a round two TKO, and that was also just three years ago, 2018. So 2018 was a big year there for Victor Henry. He got two nice wins that now have aged very well against two guys that are in the UFC, mind you, okay? I mean, just hearing that and processing that information, that at least tells me that this guy, Victor Henry, is definitely UFC capable, right? He's UFC caliber. This call-up maybe was, you know, in the waiting. His opportunity finally came. And yes, it's a last-minute call-up, but it's not a guy who's off the street of bum who's not UFC caliber. I think he actually is UFC caliber. Now, how good is he? Is he going to be good enough to beat Ronnie Barcelos? I don't think so. But just, just get the idea of your mind that this guy is just some guy off the street who hasn't fought UFC-level guys. He got wins over UFC-level people. Now, some positives that I like here about Victor Henry's game. He's a very active fighter. He's actually fought 12 times in the last three years. This will be his second fight this year. He fought twice in 2020. He's got a pretty good kicking game. So body kicks, leg kicks, um, he's active. He'll throw some front, front kicks. He mixes up his kicks a lot, which I do like. Six submission wins, so he's got some submission ability. Quality loss against Denis Laratenev. I'm probably killing that name. Latenev is 12-2 and two overall. That was his last loss, and that was actually a rematch. He had beat Denis uh, Laratenev before, but then he lost his rematch by decision. He's never been finished. Okay, so all four of his losses were actually by decision, and two of those were by split decision, so maybe he could actually only have two losses instead of four, you know, depending on how things shook out. But anyway... He's got a pretty good finish rate. He's got four straight wins that are all by finish, so pretty good finisher. Now, that stands to test. We'll see how that works in the UFC. That's been outside the UFC, so four straight finishes in a row outside the UFC. Some concerns about his game. Low-level competition, okay? So, for example, his last two opponents, their records that he's beaten, the last two wins he has, those opponents' records are 10-8-1 and 28-14-5. and um, His first UFC fight that's tough, right? Here's the bright lights. It's, it is at least the UFC, uh, the Vegas, right? It's not like the full-on crowd and the whole nine. So he should be at least a little bit more calmer than it would be if it was a full crowd. But with that said, it's still the first UFC fight. I, I'd say at 34 years old, maybe he's more mature than maybe some of the younger guys. So hopefully that helps him a little bit. Um, and in the recent interviews, he suggested, listen, I'm ready, man. 
I can't remember his exact quote, but his, his exact quote was something like along the lines of like something that uh, Diaz would say, like Nate Diaz would say something like, fighters are over, always ready. I'm always ready. I'm always prepared, you know? So that was sort of the way he attacked this fight coming in late notice. It's like, I'm always ready, man. Um, he's very hittable in his exchanges, which is a really big concern for me in this fight because Ronnie Barcelos throws nasty, quick, hard combinations. Now, Barcelos has not had any finishes in a while. This could get him back into the finish column here, especially if Victor Henry stands in front of Barcelos and tries to trade with him. He's very hittable, um, Victor Henry, that is. I saw him get a hit a lot in prior fights. His last fight against Morales, he won that fight. He wore Morales down, but Morales was landing a lot of punches on him, clean punches, and Victor was just sort of eating it. You can't do that with an elite-level striker like Barcelos who will hurt him, you know, so I don't like that part of his game. Now, the films that we watched, these two fighters to break down this film, we watched, we watched Victor Henry versus Kyler Phillips in 2018, Henry versus Morales in 2021, Barcelos versus Valiev in 2021, and Barcelos versus Taha. Those four links are in the description to watch those films if you want to watch them yourself. In terms of their side-by-side -side breakdown for experience, I give Ronnie Barcelos the experience edge, even though Victor Henry's fought more fights, 26 total fights compared to 18 for Barcelos. Barcelos has obviously fought more UFC fights and a little bit tougher opponents. Fighter IQ, I also give an edge there to Barcelos because again, he's fought some tougher opponents. Not that I think Victor is a dumb fighter, it's just a matter of this is his first UFC fight. There's only so much information you can collect from him watching or watching him fight regional scene type of level fighters. Cardio-wise, I do give an edge to Barcelos. I've seen him in round three in the UFC. I've seen how he's able to function, grapple and wrestle. In the limited film that I've watched on Victor Henry, he seems to slow down quite a bit. You know, round two, there's definitely a, a, a big dip in his output. Um, so I do see that to be a problem. If this fight does go to deeper waters, round three, I think Barcelos is going to be a lot sharper, his punches, his combinations. Um, he's going to look like the sharper fighter, the healthier, you know, the more energetic fighter, I believe, later the fight goes. So in terms of finishing ability, I give these guys both around the same rating. Now, the reason being is, again, Barcelos is dangerous. I mean, he's got some submission ability, got amazing wrestling ability, as we talked about. He's got power in his hands, but he hasn't had any finishes recently. Victor Henry, he's got four finishes in a row of the four four wins that he's had, the last four wins, but that's been again outside the UFC. So I don't know where we're at here finishing-wise. Do I see a finishing happen, finish happening here? I could see Barcelos overwhelming him. I could see that happening, but I also could very well see it go in the distance, right? You know, so boxing-wise, I give an edge to Barcelos. I think he's much cleaner, much sharper, throws combinations. Victor Henry gets a little sloppy, especially when his cardio starts to slip. Whereas Barcelos, even when he's getting more fatigued or tired, he's still striking with clean, you know, clean accuracy. For grappling, give a strong edge to Barcelos. The wrestling, the grappling backgrounds there, I wish he would use it more, but he's definitely a better wrestler or grappler than Victor Henry. Now, with that said, Victor Henry... He's got some submissions. He's no slouch on, 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 when it comes to jiu-jitsu. Six submissions actually over the course of his career out of the 17 wins he has. So, um, I'm sorry, six out of the 21 wins he has. So, Barcelos has only been submitted one time in his career. Now, it was a long time ago, I think like 2014 or something like that, seven years ago. Do I see Henry submitting a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy who's from Brazil? It seems a little bit awkward. That, that prop would probably be amazing. Anyway, the long and short of it is I don't have a lot of confidence at Barcel in Barcelos at minus 335. I think that number is a little scary, and it could blow up in your face. If Victor Henry comes out here and squeezes out one round, gets the fight to the later rounds, I could see him making this a little ugly. The guy is, look, he's a bit of a veteran coming in the first UFC fight, but he's kind of a veteran. He's beaten other guys that are in the UFC. It wouldn't be shocking to me if he wins this fight. Now, with that said, how am I going to bet on this fight? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would put Ronnie Barcelos into my parlay, my lottery parlay, but in a parlay in general, he's going to be a low ticket part of that parlay. I can't have him as a top ticket you know, piece in that parlay because I don't have a lot of confidence here. He should win the fight. Every which way, he's better here than Victor Henry. But I say, but 
Victor Henry's a little bit of a, a little bit of a wild card here. And is this for first UFC fight? Could he come out round one, just come crazy out there, push the pace, make Ronnie Barcelos uncomfortable, and just win round one? And then things just change mentally. Everything just changes now because now Barcelos comes to the corner. He's like, oh, I draft round one. I don't know. But, you know, I'm, I guess I'm thinking outside the box. If you're looking at a prop bet here, then the fight goes over one and a half. That's a prop bet I would look at here. The fight goes to decision. Hmm. It kind of feels like it should, right? You feel like it's going to be like an ugly match or it's going to go to decision. Probably that prop bet would be good to look at. I'm not sure. This fight is going to be one of the toughest ones for me to figure out. It's going to be into. It's going to be in some of my long extended parlays. But betting it straight up, I don't have a side here. I want to say dogger pass for Victor Henry because you could sort of see this coming. But Marnie Barcelos is just a superior boxer. He's going to be able to land more punches. He should land the cleaner punches. And if Victor Henry does not shore up his stand-up defense, he might even clip. So that's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe. Next up, we've got a featherweight bout between TJ Brown, the American fighter, and Gabriel Benitez from Mexico. Benitez goes by Mowgli. He's 22-9 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. He hails specifically from Tijuana, Mexico. 33 years old, 5'8 in height with 71-inch reach. He trains at an American Kickboxing Academy. As for TJ Brown, he goes by TJ Downtown Brown. It's kind of cool. Rhymes. He's 15-8 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He hails from Little Rock, Arkansas. 31 years old, so two years younger than Benitez. 5'9 in height with 73-and-a-half-inch reach. He trains at a West Side Fight Team. So a slight 1-inch height advantage there for TJ Brown and a 2-and-a-half-inch reach advantage for Brown. Now, according to Tapology, it looks like Benitez is the favorite here, getting about 83% of the votes compared to only 17% of the votes coming in for Brown. The money line also reflects similar sentiment. Uh, minus 190 of the money lines where you get Benitez currently, you can get Brown on the other side at plus 160. I like Brown to win the fight, guys. If it was a pick him, I still would like Brown. The plus money is more attractive. I know I'm in an island right here, but just hear me out. Listen to my lunacy. You'll see where I'm coming from. First of all, let me just also back up for a second here. Minus 190 for Benitez. <laughs> it's, too, it's too chalky anyway, so that's my first little bit of pause. Now, looking at the fighters side by side. TJ Brown's landing 3.87 strike per minute compared to absorbing, I'm sorry, 2.75. So decent output, about one more punch landed, you know, per one punch. You get the point. Now, as for Benitez, he's landing 4.35 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.8. Now, for takedown offense, here's where there's a real disparity. Okay, Obviously, Benitez is a little busier in his striking offense. Not a lot busier, but about one more, well, about one more strike, you know, per minute. Takedown offense, it's not even close. Trent TJ Brown is landing 4.07 takedowns per 15 minutes compared to 0.15 for Benitez. Let's paint the picture for you here. He's going to wrestle. He's going to wrestle. He's going to look to wrestle. Benitez is defending wrestling. He's defending takedowns, excuse me, at a 56% rate. You just do the math. If TJ Brown attempts, let's say, four takedowns in the fight, he's going to get two of them. Now, for TJ Brown, his defensive takedowns is terrible himself. He doesn't have to worry about it because Benitez doesn't even try to take him down. So, 36% takedown defense for TJ Brown is not going to be a factor. That 56% takedown defense is going to be a big factor here for Benitez, in my opinion. Now, early card, right? Or, I mean, early card, I mean, early fight in the card, right? So, early prelim card. I feel like this is where that plus money, the dogs, are available. I mean, it's happened to me so many times last year, looking back at my whole, like, recap of the whole year. How many of those early prelim bouts were you like, oh, there's a minus 210 or minus 250 favorite. You're thinking it's fine. You parlay it. You get a little comfort from the money line, the public vote. You know what I mean? And then it ends up crumbling in front of your face and it messes up an entire parlay you had because you're chasing that free money. You thought, oh, it's minus 190. You got it. This is the early prelim, the first prelim of 2022. I think TJ Brown is a live dog here. Um, dog or passes would be my, my, my uh, position here. Now, how much will I bet on it? For me, one unit's $100, right? So... At most, for me, a half unit is my confidence level on Brown. And I'm not going to be able to parlay it, right? I don't have that much confidence. How does he do it? 
I think, by decision. Um, we're going to talk here more about the numbers and some detailed notes I have on the two fighters. Let's talk about Brown first. So Brown, first name is Trenton, guys. Um, just hear me. I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but just hear me out. So I have friends and family, specifically my stepfather, David Valdez, who unfortunately passed away this past year. Um, man, I love that guy. David Valdez, what a wonderful father figure, man, husband to my mom, everything you could imagine. He unfortunately lost his bout with cancer right before Thanksgiving. Um, man, the world's just not the same without him. You know, it's just not the same without him. But anyway, he was born and raised in Trenton, New Jersey. If you've never been to Trenton, New Jersey, you're not missing much. It is the capital of New Jersey, but man, it's a town filled with a lot of poverty, a town filled with, unfortunately, a lot of violence, a lot of gun violence, a lot of unsolved crimes, um, but still a lot of good people. Um, my stepfather, David Valdez, one of the best people you could have ever imagined. No one ever says anything bad about the guy, which is an amazing person. So when I saw that TJ Brown's first name was Trenton, I was like, is that a sign? Is that my, you know, my pops, my stepfather giving me a sign like, hey, don't go against this kid. You know, pick the underdog here. So it's a weird thing. I know maybe a little superstitious, but for me, it was sort of like a call out like, hey, don't bet against this guy, Trenton. A little factoid about Trenton, New Jersey, too, is that Dennis Rodman was born in Trenton. Just a random thing. Obviously, NBA, different sport, whatever. Multiple-time NBA champion, played with Michael Jordan, the whole deal. If you watch that uh, Last Dance series on ESPN. Um, anyway, he was born and raised in Trenton. And also, oh, man, I can't remember the guy's name. A football player. Played for years in the NFL. Played for the Eagles, for all the Eagles fans out there. But uh, he actually grew up in Trenton. Anyway, Trenton's a small town. Kind of a rough place. But uh, Trenton, TJ Brown, you know, I think this kid's got it. I think he's got the wrestling ability. I think people are questioning that and saying, well, he doesn't wrestle enough. Pretty good wrestling background. I think he uses wrestling here. He's 1-2 in the UFC. This will be his fourth UFC fight. His biggest win was over Justin James in 2020 via TKO in round one. So not a big, big-time name, but that's his biggest win. His most notable opponents, he lost via decision to Omar Morales. He lost by rear naked choke in round two, 2020, to Jordan Griffin. And then he won a split decision over Kai Kamaka III in 2021, which is a little bit controversial, but the point is he won that fight over Kamaka, who... Recently got cut by the UFC, but went to Bellator and picked up a nice win uh, in his first Bellator fight. So the positives are like on TJ Brown. He trains at MMA Glory and Fitness, and he's got um, he's got the guru in his corner, right? James Krause. You know, so he's got good training, good partners, you know, just overall good solid program there, right? Solid lower leg kicks. It's one thing about his game that I just kind of forgot about. When I started watching film on him again, I'm, I'm like, man, those lower leg kicks are effective. He should use them more. So if he uses lower leg kicks and he looks to wrestle, that combination right there seems to me like the combination for success in this fight as a way to win over Gabriel Benitez. Now, the concerns that I have on TJ Brown, for this fight specifically, if he stays on his feet, tries to box with Benitez, it could be some problems here. Benitez is a very good boxer, a little better here than TJ Brown. And I can see TJ Brown getting lit up on his feet. So I, he's going to have to mix it up. I'm going to have to grab a little bit, bring it to the ground, some kicking game, you know, punchy kicky, just mix it up, right? Um... My other concern for TJ Brown is that he doesn't have a lot of UFC experience. When you're looking at Gabriel Benitez, who's had a few more fights under his belt, he's also got 11 total UFC fights compared to this being the fourth fight for TJ Brown. So experience, you know, it's always a factor. If you're looking at a guy like TJ Brown who still unproven, still young, not, not a Wiley veteran, Gabriel Benitez is a Wiley veteran, only two years older, but still a lot more ring experience. So that's my concerns with TJ Brown. Now, as for Gabriel Benitez from Mexico, 6-5 and five in the UFC. So he's got a 500 record in the UFC. I mean, say what you what you want. It's inconsistent, yes, but he's not losing every fight. You got some guys out there like 0-4 in the UFC. Here's a guy who's picked up some wins. His biggest win for him as well, not very notable. So he doesn't have you know people on his resume where you're like, oh, he got this big win over, I don't know. Like for him, he won against also Justin James. Wait, did I misspeak on that one? TJ Brown, his biggest win was over. Correction, correction on that. TJ Brown did not even fight Justin James. I had an error there on my notes. For, for TJ Brown, his biggest win of his career was clearly over Kai Kamaka III. So 
er, rewind on that one. For Benitez, his biggest win was Justin Jane's 2020 uh, round one, knee to the body. Now, he's one and three in his last four fights. Another big concern I have here on Benitez. So, not sure what that's about. I mean, obviously, he's fought decent competition. Sadiq Youssef finished him in round one. Omar Morales by decision. And then Billy Quarantino finished him in round three, which is a beatdown. That fight, actually, the link's in the description. Billy Quarantino put it on Gabriel Benitez. The fight got stopped because he couldn't get him off his back. It wasn't like the punches were hard. His his eye was very swollen. He was taking a lot of damage in the fight. You know, it was stopped. He stepped in there. Um, so wasn't a good look there for Benitez. I, I felt like in that fight, you know, he should poor, you know, poor fighter IQ, couldn't stay away from Billy Quarantino, couldn't keep Quarantino off of his back. And so it was just three rounds of a pounding, basically. He did clock um Quarantino at one point in that fight, though. He did knock him down. So it should be mentioned. But anyway, so for Benitez, his most notable opponent in his career, I mentioned Sadiq Youssef. He lost him round one TKO. Omar Morales by decision. And Billy Quarantino, he lost him round three by TKO. The positives I like about Benitez is his game. Or Benitez's game. Experience is a huge advantage here. This is his 12th UFC fight compared to the 4th UFC fight. He's got a super-duper strong chin, okay? Don't get it twisted. Benitez, he lost via TKO, TKO in his last fight. But most grown men would not have gotten that far. He took a lot of damage. His eye was pretty much closed. He kept going. He didn't quit. Even after the fight was stopped, he was back on his feet. The guy is, he's a warrior. He's got that Mexican warrior spirit in him. So not easy out by any means. He trains at a very good gym at American Kickboxing. So they both have good foundations, good gyms, good training partners. Now, my concern with Benitez, inconsistent, right? He's four and five in his last nine fights. He got his ass really beaten up there against Quarantino. That was in 2021. It wasn't too long ago. He was favored going into the fight against Billy Quarantino. So keep that in mind. Not a big favorite, but like minus 150 favorite, okay? Around minus 190 for this fight. So just keep that in mind. Now, the films that we watched these two fighters when we broke this film down uh, was Benitez versus Quarantino 2021, Brown versus Kamaka 2021, and Brown versus Chavez 2020. Those three links for those three fights are in the description to watch them at your leisure. Um, so, yeah, look, this is a tough one for me to go against. Again, Trenton, the name Trenton. I mean, I just, you know, I'm biased here. So I'm going to take Trenton here as a dog or pass play. Not going to parlay it. I do not have any takes on the props at this time. We'll have our prop show. We'll break down the props for this fight a little more specifically. But just at my first glance here and breaking it down, based upon the basics information we talked about here, striking numbers and whatever else, I think TJ Brown is as live of a dog as you can have. Plus 160 is not like the biggest dog in the world anyway. But still, give me manja, manja, manja. Give me that plus money. All right, guys, good luck with this one. fight the car is going to be a women's bout between the American Vanessa Dimopoulos and the Argentinian fighter Savannah Gomez Juarez. Juarez goes by La Malvada. She's 10-3 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights. 37 years old, 5-3 in height, 63-inch reach. She trains out of Entrum Gym, very good gym in South America. As for Vanessa Dimopoulos, who goes by Little Monster, she's 6-4 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights. She's out of Los Angeles, California, 33 years old, 5-2 in height, 62-inch reach. She's out of Fight Ready MMA. So both fighters are coming out of very good gyms. A slight reach and height advantage there for Juarez. Now, looking at the public vote here on Tapology, Juarez is the favorite, getting almost 70% of the votes here on Tapology. Now, look, this is a tough fight to call, and I don't want to just pass on it. I have to choose something for you guys and give you a pick, right? I'm going to pick Vanessa Dimopoulos, but oof, not a lot of confidence. I see a lot of holes in her game, and there's some, definitely some holes in Savannah's game. Now, Savannah is a replacement here, not a last-minute replacement, but initially this fight was supposed to be with someone else for Vanessa. We'll talk more about that. Looking at the striking numbers here to two fighters, Vanessa's landing 3.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.67. Not a good ratio. She's basically absorbing an, another punch and a half compared to what she's dish, dishing out, right? For Savannah Juarez, she's averaging 0.71 strikes per minute. You got that right. Less than one strike per minute. And she's absorbing 2.6. Maybe one of the worst ratios I've ever seen. So obviously not a good ratio there for Juarez. 
not a lot of fight history for her. So she's only fought one UFC or event, which is the Dana White Contender Series fight. So not a lot of experience for her. But again, just not very good uh, boxing uh, ratio there. For takedown offense, neither fighter is very active there. Both of them are averaging zero takedowns per 15 minutes. Takedown defense, Juarez 16% and Dempolis 32%. Now you can see what I'm talking about here. These two fighters, for lack of better words, are very, 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 very low level MMA women's fighters. So to put money in this fight would be the epitome of gambling. I don't see a side that you can side with for sure. On the money line, it's minus 110, both sides. This is gambling. Flip a coin, pick a side. I'm going to give you some more details here to break down this fight, but I'm telling you right now, stay away from this one. This one's, this one's like destined for an ugly split decision where you're just hoping you have the right side. You know what I mean? So looking at the uh, notes on these two fighters here for Demopolis, she is from California. We talked about that. Her dad was a big part of her training. She was younger. You know, he's biggest fan, supporter. Unfortunately, she passed away two years ago. She talked about it in interviews, how it's a big part of her motivation to fight, you know, in memory of her father, who was her biggest fan. She's 5-2 and two in LFA prior to joining UFC. She lost on Dana White Contenders in 2020 to Corey McKenna. 0-1 in the UFC so far. She got KO'd in an amateur bout against Caitlin Chukagan. So, not bad, it's Caitlin Chukagan, but she did get KO'd by her in an amateur bout. She won via TKO over Cheyenne Vlismus. Cheyenne Bays. Yeah, she beat Cheyenne Bays. 2017 as an amateur, the one caveat was it was uh, an injury. So actually, Cheyenne Bays got injured in that fight. I didn't watch the film, but still, good win there for Vanessa. Her biggest wins of her career, Sam Hughes, 2020, via submission in round four. And that's a current UFC fighter, Sam Hughes, even though she's like 0-3 in the UFC. But still, she beat her by submission round four. Um, and Cheyenne Vlismas, Cheyenne Bays, as we mentioned, TKO victory, 2017, in an amateur fight. Now, her pros, the things I like a lot about Vanessa, high finish rate. She's finished 50% of the wins that she's she's accomplished. LFA experience, good competition over her young career. So, young fighter, 10 total fights. Um, not young in terms of age, 33 years old. She's you know approaching her prime years in terms of age. But only 10 total fights. She's fought some good competition. Quality losses. She lost against Lupita Godinez, 2020, via decision in LFA. She lost to Corey McKenna via decision, 2020, LFA. She lost to J.J. Allridge via decision in 2021 UFC. And then she lost to Caitlin Chukagan in 2013 via TKO as a, in a round three as an amateur. So she's been in there with UFC caliber fighters. There's no question. I think when she gets in there with UFC caliber fighters, we tend to see the deficiencies in her in her fighting game. But still, she's shared the cage with some better fighters in Silvana. The concerns I have for Vanessa, she's two and four in her last six fights, grappling and MMA included, right? So she's not winning very much right now. She has a hard time against higher-level competition. Only 10 total fights, but the four losses are against fighters that just a little bump up, right? Now, as for Silvana Juarez, she is the late replacement here. This fight initially was supposed to be between... Let me look it up right here. I apologize for not having that readily available. This fight was supposed to be initially between um, Vanessa and Ashley Yoder. That's right. And Ashley Yoder had an injury, so she had to pull out. And so here comes Silvana Juarez. Not a last-minute replacement, but still, nonetheless, a replacement fighter. Now, Juarez, we mentioned, is from Argentina. She's 1-0 in Invicta, 0-1 in KSW. She lost her UFC debut in 2007, 2021 versus Lupita Godinez. Got armbarred in round, what was that, round one, round two. Let me just double-check. I don't want to misspeak on that one. She got armbarred in round one, yeah. And uh, not a great look. <laughs> you know, UFC debut, not, not a great look. Um, some more information about her. I don't have much about her. Honestly, I don't have much information about Silvana Juarez. This was a fight where... The more I looked into it, the more I realized there's just so many variables, you know, variables that you just can't really quite wrap your hand around. Like you want to say that in one side of it, Vanessa Demopoulos is a very raw fighter. Like you're looking at her film, there's a lot to be <laughs> left to be desired. I do like her, like her story. I like that, you know, she's American, um, you know, young lady, you know, the whole thing about her father. There's a lot of reasons to kind of like her. She's likable, right? 
and she's cute, right? She's got this whole cute factor, and she spends a lot of time on the gram, and, and you can see her up there on social media. Like, you know, she cares about her looks. Silvana Juarez, to me, at 37 years old, is like, ugh. We're approaching the time of expiration date. I don't love that. I don't love the fact that she got completely manhandled by Godinez in her UFC debut. Now, from one side of it, that was the good version of Godinez. Good for Godinez. That she should be doing that against lower-level fighters. She's a good fighter, right? But she hasn't been doing that, Godinez. And so she goes up against Juarez, and she's like, oh, manhandles her. And it's like, oh, there's Godinez. Well, that's because maybe Juarez is lower level. So I don't know how this fight goes. I just have no clue how this works out. I guess it goes a distance, right? Women's bout. Look at that prop. That's probably a prop you want to consider. But who wins this fight? I just have no idea. I mean, I could see a scenario where one person looks like they won the fight. Don't just give it to the other person. So it's going to be tough here. I'm not going to bet this fight. Just put it out there. I'm not betting this fight. I'll throw it into my lottery parlay just because, and it'll be the lowest part of the lottery parlay. So it'll be a low-level ticket. And I'm going to choose Vanessa Dimopoulos, but I have no confidence in this fight. I have no confidence either fight will, will finish each other. I think it's ugly. I think it's boring. I think it's 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 justified to be on the early card here, on the prelim undercard. And if you're listening to this and you're, you're a fan of either fighter, this is not disrespectful. I'm just calling it what it is. This is probably going to be a slow-paced fight. We don't have any finishing power either fighter, and it's not going to be very... Um, not going to be exciting, so I hate to say it, but that's where my breakdown is. I like Vanessa to win the fight. I have no reason to believe that, but that's my gut. So that's a breakdown, guys. Good luck with this one. Next fight's going to be a lightweight bout between the American Dakota Bush and Vyacheslav Borshev from Russia. These two guys here have very unique nicknames. Vyacheslav Borshev goes by Slava Claus, and Dakota Bush goes by Harry, as in... Harry Bush. <laughs> anyway, so Bush is 8-3 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He hails out of Cuba, Missouri, 27 years old, 5-10 in height with 73 in treat. He trains out of Glory MMA Fitness with James Krause. As for Borshev, he's 5-1 overall. He's out of Sacramento, California currently, where he trains out of Team Alpha Male, 5-11 in height with 69-inch reach. So 30 years old, 3 years older here than Dakota Bush. He's going to also have a 1-inch height advantage, that's Borshev, and a 3-inch, I'm sorry, a 4-inch disadvantage there in the reach for Borshev. Now, looking at Tapology's public votes here, Borshev is getting 86% of the votes here, only 14% of the votes coming in for Bush. I'm a little surprised. That must be because of the Dana White contender series win that Borshev had recently. It was exciting. It was over Chris Duncan. It was a knockout. And so I'm imagining that's why the money line here has him at minus 200. A little chalky uh, for my liking. I think this fight is very close. I don't have a heavy lean either way. Looking at the striking numbers here, Bush is landing 2.73 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.47. Not a good ratio. I mean, literally absorbing almost two more strikes per minute than he's dishing out. As for Borshev, we don't have striking numbers on him because he has never fought a UFC fight, so we just don't have the numbers on him. For takedown offense, for Bush, he's landing one takedown per 15 minutes, has a 0% takedown defense. I'm not sure how much of that plays a part in this fight. Watching Vyashlev Borshev fight recently, especially his Dana White contender series fight, he did do some wrestling, but clearly his talent's on his feet. His striking is elite. He has a big-time kickboxing background, almost 20 kickboxing fights in his resume. Um, which doesn't show up on Tapology, but he's got, what, 18 and 2 in, in kickboxing, four kickboxing knockouts. So he's a striker, um, but being that he's Russian, you kind of assume he's more of a wrestler, right? But it's not really the case of how he actually fights. Now, notes on these two fighters here. For Dakota Bush, he is a former high school wrestler. He had dreams of going and wrestling in college, but ended up not being his thing. As he described it, it was just uh, not the same as high school. I guess I don't know what that means, but clearly not the same. His father fought a few amateur cage fights um, and actually fought in a promotion that Dakota ended up fighting in when he first got into amateur fighting. So he got it from his dad. His dad was an actual amateur fighter. Um, he's married with a son. He met his wife through one of his coaches. One of his coaches, that's his, that's a daughter. So he actually met his uh, future wife through one of his coaches. 
He's seven and one as an amateur. He went pro in 2016. He fought in LFA prior to UFC. He was five and two in the LFA. He lost his UFC debut in 2021 to Austin Hubbard. Decent fighter. Now all three judges had him winning round one. He actually won round one in all three cards. But man, he slowed so much in round two and round three, and it makes sense. He had four days' notice for that fight. So clearly he was gassed. End of round one, round two, round three. He couldn't get off the ground, got out wrestled, was tired. But it was a good showing in that he lasted three rounds, went the full distance against a guy like Austin Hubbard, and when he, when he was fresh, he won round one, right? So the, the things I like about Dakota Bush's fighting style, he's a very good wrestler. Now, only one takedown per fight. I'm going to see him do more of the wrestling. He's got a wrestling background, you know, state finalist in high school. So I want to see him do more wrestling. He's a pretty good wrestler. He has a high finish rate. I was surprised. He's got five straight wins by finish, and 75% of the fights that he wins are excuse me, by finish. So quality losses, he lost to Bryce Logan via decision in 2018, who's a current Bellator fighter. He lost to Julio Willis in 2019 via decision as well, another current Bellator fighter, and he lost to Austin Hubbard via decision in 2021, which is a current UFC fighter. So those three decisions that he lost recently, all guys were either Bellator UFC, and they were by decision. Very good gym, as we mentioned. Glory MMA Fitness, um, good coaching staff, good training partners. The concerns I have with Dakota Push, or Dakota Push, Dakota Bush, that is. He has had trouble whenever he had to step up, step up in competition, okay? So, for example, when he goes up against Hubbard and guys like that, he comes up a little bit short, right? He also got very tired of that Hubbard fight. I know I talked about it before. I want to mention it again, though. Is that a one-fight thing? Was that a late-notice thing? Or is cardio going to be a factor for him? We'll pay attention to this fight and see what the case is. Now, as for Borshev, Slava Claus. Born in Russia, all right, he's a multiple-time amateur award winner for kickboxing in Europe and Russia. Tons of accolades. 18-2 as a kickboxer, 4KO wins in kickboxing. He's a master of sport. That's a, Russian, that's a Russian terminology. So in Russia, when you like study, uh, I guess, a certain sport and you actually study it, and you can actually achieve a status of master of sport. And so that's his title there in Russia. He has worked as an instructor at a state institution in Russia for children since 2010, where he actually teaches like coaches and teaches like you know combat training not just to small children but to actually international athletes who come through russia so he's very well ingratiated in the school system in russia he actually has a law degree guys he's a very intelligent dude very well rounded he's married with children okay his biggest wins of his career chris duncan round two tko 2021 dating my contenders that is his biggest win that is also a concern chris duncan is a good amateur level now pro i guess fighters got potential but that's his biggest win. Hasn't really fought many people that have higher level, uh, you know, ability to MMA. So the things I like about Vashlev, he's fought three times in 2021 and twice in 2020. So even though he just got into mixed martial arts after a long kickboxing career, he's active. You know, five fights in two years, it'll be a six fight right now. Six fight in two years. High finish rate. The same thing as Dakota Bush. 75% of the fights that he wins are by finish, specifically by TKO. Um, good coaches, good gym, team alpha male. So I think that matches up well here with Dakota Bush. He has displayed KO power. So looking at the fight against Chris Duncan, for example, or even his fights prior to that, he has power in his hands. You know, Vashilev doesn't look like much when you look at him. Like, he's just like a normal, whatever, guy. Man, he's got some power. Sharp boxing. He's, his hands go straight out, come right back into his guard. No looping, wild punches. Very good boxing technique. The concerns I have on Borshev are very limited experience. It is his first UFC fight. That first UFC fight, it's tough for some guys. The bright lights, all that kind of stuff. Three of his five wins are against sub-500 fighters. So he's only got, what, five wins, five and one. Very inexperienced, right? Three of those five wins were against guys that were below 500, not very good fighters. Now, we watched this. To do this breakdown, we broke down the fight watching four fights on, on film. We watched Dakota Bush versus Hubbard, Bush versus uh, Clem, Borshev versus Duncan, and Borshev versus Delaney. Those four fights are in the description. You can find those links there to watch yourself. Looking at the, the fighters' side-by-side -side comparisons, 
I do give Borshev a slight experience advantage, and it's because of the kickboxing background. Both fighters have fought less than 10 MMA fights, and Bush is fighting his second UFC fight. So technically, UFC-wise, more experience for Bush. But the reality is the 20 kickboxing fights in Borshev's background is a factor. I think he's more experienced. IQ-wise, they're the same, in my opinion. Cardio-wise, I'm going to give a small, slight advantage to Vyashlev Borshev because I've seen him. I know that he can go long, round two, round three. He can perform. He's okay. For Dakota Bush, I don't know that for sure. It's a question. I don't know. Maybe he can, but it's a question mark for me. So I'm giving him a slight edge there for Borshev. Finishing-wise, both guys have a 75, 75%, 75% excuse me, finish rate. So I'm giving him the same rating on that. Boxing-wise, I do give an edge to Borshev. I think he's a very clean striker. Punches come straight out, come right back in. Very clean, good combinations. I mean, he clipped uh, Duncan with a very nice short left hook. It was not a luck shot. You know, the guy's training that shot. You can see he's very, and the guy's got coaching background. He's pretty cerebral. He's a smart, smart guy. All right, so for grappling, I do give a small advantage to Dakota Bush in grappling. Got the wrestling background. Seems to want to grapple more um, than Borshev. But it, could it be equal? Maybe. Neither guy is like an amazing grappler compared to the other. They're both okay grapplers. The fight does not go the distance. That prop is minus 175. I like that prop the most out of all the props available for this fight. The fight does not go the distance. I think one of these two fighters, I'm not sure which one, is going to end the fight at some point. I think it probably would be Borshev, actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, I like Borshev to win. But either way, this fight probably does not go the full distance. And one of these two guys finds a way to get him out of there. I think it's Borshev. He's like a silent but violent guy. The way he fights is very sneaky. He's very durable. He could take a punch. In his fight against Chris Duncan, Chris Duncan was leading the dance. He was pushing the pace. He was backing up Borshev at times. But Borshev was smart. He was patient. Looked for his opportunities. And when the opportunities came, he clocked him, finished the fight. So I like Borshev to win the fight. I can't go against the Russian brother here. I think at minus 200, a little chalky for my liking. But it'll be a parlay piece. Um, I will not most likely bet this straight up because I think, again, at minus 200, there's not a ton of value there. And I do see a way that Dota Bush can come here and make this, close, make this fight very close, right? So I don't know for sure. Anyway, I like Borshev to win the fight. That's my choice. Good luck with this one, guys. Next, we have the one and only headway fight in the card between two American fighters, Chase Sherman, who goes by the Vanilla Gorilla, versus Jake Collier, the prototype. Collier is 12-6 and six overall, 2-3 in his last five fights, fighting out of Cuba, Missouri. 33 years old, 6'3", and high with 78.5-inch reach. He trains out of no excuses of May. As for Chase Sherman, he's 15-8 overall, 3-2 and two in his last five fights, fighting out of Delbersville, Mississippi, 32 years old, 6'4", and high with 78-inch reach. He trains out of American top team there in Delbersville, Mississippi. Now, according to Tapology, Sherman is the favorite right now, getting about 73% of the votes compared to 27 of the votes coming in for Collier. So, look, I think Sherman probably wins the fight, but it's like, ugh. I'm not very confident. Um, we'll break this down together. We'll talk about it. But there's a chance that Collier can win the fight, too. There's some, there's definitely some red flags here with Chase Sherman we're going to talk about. Now, in terms of their striking numbers here, good output for heavyweights. Sherman's landing 6.24 strikes per minute, absorbing 6.33. So high output, but also receiving quite a bit of punches as well. For Jake Collier, he's landing 5.52 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.44. Again, very high output for heavyweights. Now, takedown offense. Pretty much none. For Sherman, zero takedowns per 15 minutes. And for Collier, a half a takedown per 15 minutes. Just about, look, they're heavyweights. They don't want to bend over. They don't want to get on the ground. They don't have to get back up. So this fight will be on the feet the entire time. There may be one or two little grappling exchanges against the fence. But even that would be very limited. For takedown defense, Sherman's defending an 82% rate and Collier 67%. Again, it should not be a factor in this fight. Now, looking at some notes on the fighters here, Chase Sherman is a former... High school and college football player, actually signed a scholarship to college, won a national championship at Delta State University, which is Division II, was an offensive lineman. 
Um, if you look at his build right now, he looks like in tremendous shape. So if he was a bigger offensive lineman, kind of fatter in college, he trimmed down, looks pretty good for heavyweight, and has the natural heavyweight body, which we'll talk more about that when we talk about Jake Collier. He's got a bachelor's degree. That's Sherman, that is. He's 4-0 as an amateur. He had a, he's got a seven-year pro career. He participated in bare-knuckle fights um, between his time with UFC. This is actually his second time with the UFC. Okay, He's 3-7 and seven overall in the UFC. Not a great record. But he was with the UFC first between 2016 and 2018, then got let go, and then re-signed in 2020. His most notable opponent, he lost, he lost to Augusto Sakai via round three, uh, TKO 2018. He lost to Walt Harris via round two, TKO 2017. And he lost a decision to Andre Arlovsky, the old veteran in 2021, which is, it's Arlovsky, so it's not the worst, but my gosh, he's getting old. And that, that fight was one of those fights where you're like, come on, Chase, why aren't you pushing the pace against an older fighter? He just didn't really do it, right? His biggest win is against Ike Villanueva, round two, TKO 2020. Now, look, that says a lot. Ike Villanueva is a decent fighter, but that's the biggest win here on Chase Sherman's uh, resume. The, the, the positives I like about Chase Sherman, things about his game that I like about He's an active fighter, averaging just about 2.9 fights per year, or just about three fights per year. He's got a pretty high finish rate. Eight of his last nine wins have been wins by TKO or finish of some kind. 93% finish rate in general um, by KO. So when he's winning his fights, it's 90% of the time by a KO. He's athletic for a heavyweight, stands very tall, has the very natural heavyweight build, effective with his lower leg kicks. When he fought against, for example, Porter, he lost the fight, but man, he had Porter's lead leg hurt. Had he put more time into it, could have maybe gotten a victory in that fight instead of being able to bad decision loss. So some concerns I have here on Chase Sherman. He displays poor decision-making in the cage. So when he's in there, it's like he's not hurt. He's just making bad decisions at times. Now, between rounds in one of his most recent fights, his like his corner was trying to get him up, you know, basically pep him up. Like, hey, let's go, Sherman. You know, and he was like, no, like down, negative, you know, just kind of acting out a little bit in the corner. I don't know if it was a one fight type of thing. Maybe it was one fight type of thing. Just a bit of a red flag. Here's a guy, maybe there's like underlying like confidence issues, maybe God, God forbid some mental health issues, but just not great communication in the corner between one of his most recent fights. So a bit of a concern for me. A low winning percentage in the UFC. I just talked about it. Three and seven in the UFC. Not very good a winning percentage in the UFC. He does not have a signature win, as we mentioned. Um, his biggest win was against uh, Villanueva. So uh, with that said, let's talk about Jake Collier. So Jake Collier from St. Louis, Missouri. He had no athletic background as a kid. At 20 years old, he walks into the BJJ gym. He's like, I want to start doing this to lose some weight. Ironic because he ends up becoming a mixed martial arts, gets into UFC, you know, top of the game, right? And he's a fit good-looking middleweight middleweight the dude is fighting now at heavyweight he waited he waited at 264 for one of his most recent fights like he's full-blown heavyweight he does not look like anything like he used to look if you look at pictures of jake collier from before he was like an in-shape ripped middleweight so he had an injury didn't fight from 2018 2019 almost a two-year layoff was recovered from his injury during that time he went up two weight classes so um, that's kind of his story. The positive is he's very athletic for a big guy, right? He's got quicker hands, pretty good feet. Been a pro for 10 years, been around the block. You know, Jay Carter's got some experience. When he wins his fight, it's usually by a finish. So this is an interesting little stat here. 66% of the time when he wins a fight, it's by a finish. When he loses, it's by finish 66% of the time. So it's the same exact stat. So when he wins, it's usually by a finish. When he loses, it's also by a finish. So kind of interesting stat here on him. His most notable opponent, he fought Tom Aspinall, lost to him round one TKO 2020. He fought Carlos Philippe, Carlos Philippe, Carlos Philippe and lost to him via split decision. 
His biggest win was a Gian Vellante. Um, so again, not a big opponent, not a big win. Um, but these guys are similar in that aspect where they haven't really fought or beaten anyone notable. Um, some positives I like about Collier. He's very quick and athletic for a heavyweight. Both these guys are quick and athletic and busy for heavyweights. Decent cardio early on, but I noticed in some of the recent fights with Jack Collier or Jake Collier, his cardio is not that good. We'll talk more about that in a second here. High volume for a heavyweight, 5.5 two strikes per minute. That's very high volume for Jake Collier for a heavyweight as well. Active fighter, just under two fights per year he's averaging. Now, for Jake Collier, I'm concerned. Number one, he does not seem to have finishing power, especially in his hands. Um, not much of a submission artist either, but in his hands, throws a little bit of throws volume, but doesn't seem to have a lot of power behind his cardio. He slowed down a ton against Felipe. In that fight, round two, he hits a wall. His mouthpiece starts falling out. He's having a hard time bending over just to get it. He's breathing harder. Um, he's trying to keep up with Philippe. He ends up just getting backed up and outclassed and loses a, you know, a close decision to Philippe. A guy that, I'm sorry to say it, but like, these guys are all the same, right? Like Carlos Philippe, Chase Sherman, Jay Collier. Like, who's going to separate themselves? And I think at least Carlos Philippe tries to separate himself. Jay Collier kind of like accepts the situation. He accepted the situation in that fight. Very inconsistent of late, okay? So, for example, he's 4-5 and five in his last nine fights. That's Jay Collier. He hasn't won two fights in a row since 2014. So it's been about seven to eight years since he's knocked back-to-back -back wins. And he's coming off of a win. So you know what that means. He's due for a loss. The fights we watched to do this breakdown, we watched Chase Sherman versus Porter 2021. Chase Sherman versus Orlovsky 2021. Jake Collier versus Felipe 2021. And Jake Collier versus Vellante 2020. Those four fights and those four links are in the description for you to review at your leisure. Now, just a little bit more uh, in-depth review on the side-by-side -side comparisons to these two fighters here. Experience-wise, I give the edge to Jake Collier. He's fought uh, a little more, you know, UFC fights of late. Um, for Chase Sherman, yes, he's, you know, done his time in the UFC, but it just hasn't gone as well. So I give a slight experience edge to Jake Collier. IQ, I give them both a very low rating for their fighter IQ, 2 out of 5. I just have seen things by both fighters that make me question. Jake Collier, I'm, I'm not trying to, like, body shame the guy, but I just wonder, like, I understand the idea of not trying to cut too much weight and being healthier outside the octagon when you're not fighting, but... This is just too much. This guy was a middleweight, and now he's fighting at heavyweight. Just too too much. I question decision-making there. For Chase Sherman, I, qu I question like his mental state in the corner. Is he all there? Um, his decision-making during during the fight. Is he really trying to press the pace and win the fight? Cardio-wise, I give a small advantage to, Jay, to Chase Sherman. Uh, Boxing-wise, they're both okay boxers, I guess. You know, they're okay. Raw at times. Um, both lack like technique, but they're, they're decent enough. There is KO power because they're heavyweights. They, they can crack each other. If it gets to that, but they both also have a tendency of getting slow. The fight goes on. Uh, Chase Sherman gets frustrated. He's not winning the way he wants to win. His output gets weird. Um, this could be a very boring heavyweight fight. A matter of fact, in one of Jake Collier's most recent fights, who was he fighting? He was fighting, um, let me look at this because it was really funny. He was fighting, oh, Carlos Philippe. In the Carlos Philippe versus Jake Collier fight, it's like one of the first fights in the card, I think, for a live audience. So you have people there live. And there is some dude. God bless this man. He must have like literally blown his lungs out that night. He's screaming at the top of his lungs. Boring. Boring. If you look at that fight, the link's in the description, you'll, you'll hear this guy. And he's like screaming as loud as he freaking can. And even DC, uh, the commentators are like talking about like, man, that guy is like really going nuts. But it's a heavyweight fight. And I fear this fight could be a lot like that where it's two heavyweights dancing with each other but not really swinging. Three rounds, next thing you know, go to the scorecards. In that case, it goes to the scorecards. I think Chase Sherman edges him out just mathematically alone. He does land more strikes. You know, I mean, that should be enough for him to win. Um, does a good job with his lead leg kicks, especially against, you know, a fighter who's not protecting the front leg. So I think Chase Sherman gets the win here. 
It's close. It's greasy by split decision. Now, could Chase Sherman sort of implode? Um, you know, kind of lose his mind, lose his way, get frustrated, start doing something silly. I'm not surprised. I'm not putting a lot of money either way on this fight, guys. I am going to side with Chase Sherman at the plus money here at plus 105. Pretty much a pick him. This is a dogger pass for me. This is a pity we have a dogger pass. Even though it's not much dog money, I don't feel comfortable getting behind Jake Collier or Chase Sherman. As a matter of fact, whoever they fight next, most likely I'm fading that guy. I'm fading them against that guy. So with that said, I'm going with Chase Sherman. Bet with caution. These guys are very similar. The fight goes to distance. It's minus 125. That prop is the first prop that kind of poked out to me a little bit. But don't love it. We'll talk more about the props on our prop show. So that's the breakdown, guys, in this fight. Probably went way too long on this breakdown. But the reality is it is a close fight. There's reasons to not like both fighters, and there's reasons to question both fighters. But at least Chase Sherman here, I believe, even though he's 32 and Jake's 33, one more thing, he just seems like the younger prospect. He just seems like the younger guy they're trying to you know, push up right now. Just seems like the guy that would be the person who should win this fight. I'm using a lot of things. like I'm using a lot of words like seem and should and maybe. So... Not a lot of confidence, but I'm on Jake's Chase Sermon should win the fight. Let me know what you guys think in the description. Let me know if I'm missing something. Uh, give me your feedback. Let me know who you're betting on and why. Next up in the card, we have a welterweight bout between two American fighters, Ramiz Brahamaj and Court McGee. Court McGee goes by the Crusher. He's 20 and 10 overall, 2 and 3 in his last five fights. He hails out of Utah, 37 years old, 5'11 in height with 75 and a half inch reach. He trains under the Pitt Elevated Fight Team. As for Ramiz Brahimaj, he's 9 and 3 overall, 3 and 2 in his last five fights. He's out of the Bronx, New York City, 29 years old, 5'10 in height with 73 inch reach. He trains out of Fortis MMA, so very good gyms for both fighters. Now, according to Tapology, it's down the middle. 51% of the votes coming in for McGee. 49% of the votes are coming in for Bahamaj. I could see how it's a close fight. I think for me, there's a few simple deciding factors that led me to favor Bahamaj to win. So I'll tell you right now, if you're listening to this on the podcast and not seeing the actual screen on YouTube, you can't see the arrow pointing towards Bahamaj. I think Bahamaj wins the fight specifically because of the youth advantage um, and the submission attacks. We're going to talk more about that. Looking more at the striking numbers here. For Braham, Brahimaj, not very good striking numbers. Landing 3.15 strikes per minute and then absorbing 5.14. Um, if you watch the Max Griffin fight, that was part of it. He took kind of a beating in that fight. Took a lot of punishment. Took a lot of hits. Had his ear basically more or less kind of ripped off from a glancing uh, shot. It says elbow on topology, but it was more of a glancing punch. His ear was literally hanging off. Kind of a gnarly thing if you ever want to watch that film. The link's in the description if you want to watch that yourself. Anyway, um, in terms of Court McGee, a little better here. He's landing 4.76. Starts per minute, so more output. And absorbing 3.78, so better percentages there. For takedown offense, Ramiz is landing just over two takedowns per 15 minutes. And Court McGee is landing just over a takedown and a half per 15 minutes. Ramiz has got 100% takedown defense. Very good. 69% for Court McGee. Not so not so bad. I do think Ramiz is going to test the takedown defense there of McGee because that's a big part of his game. He likes to wrestle, likes to look for submissions. Now, looking here at some notes on the fighters, McGee is um, out of Utah. He was a state finalist in, in high school with uh, out of, with wrestling. So he was a you know wrestling background, wrestling in high school. He's a family man. He's got three sons with his wife. If you don't know the story on this guy, I'll summarize it really quick because I don't want to get off on a tantrum. He, um, he suffered from heroin addiction he got into some recreational stuff after high school but then it was also triggered by a surgery and then getting prescribed oxycodone he ended up having an overdose he legally died for eight minutes and i have to ask the question i just when i read this i'm like 
how do they know how long he was dead for? Like, was somebody there, like, pronouncing him dead and then being, like, a few minutes later, like, oh, he's back? Oh, well, how long was he dead for? You know, just kind of an awkward thing. But he legally died. He was brought back to life. I don't know, Narcan, whatever the case may be. Really got his whole life together. This guy's been sober. I, w- I want to make sure I'm clear on this. 16 years. So he's been on the right and narrow for a long time. He's got a family. He's got children. He's had seven surgeries that are known of without any painkillers like surgeries with no painkillers because again he wants to keep himself completely away from that stuff he realizes he you know he has his addiction um so yeah just a unique story he's completely rehabbed himself talks at prisons talks at schools talks at rehab centers you know shares his story tries to be an inspiration so a lot like um is it jared gordon am i saying that guy's right maybe it's not jared but gordon is the name of the fighter similar story where he's you know completely turned his life around recovered from addiction whatever else so Shout out to Court McGee. Um, I would hate to choose against a guy with such an amazing story because, you know, in real life, he's winning. You know, he's doing great things, and I wish him and his family the best. So, more background on McGee. 2-0 as a boxer, so he has a boxing background. You can see that when he fights. He kind of has a boxing stance. He's a traditional stance, so not a left hand or not a southpaw, traditional right-handed stance. He came into Ultimate Fighter as a participant in 2010, so, gosh, 11, 12 years ago. He's been a pro for 14 years, 8-9 and in the UFC, so he's going to be a... His 18th total UFC fight, so definitely a UFC veteran. He started his career 14-1 and one, um, at one point. He was 12-1 and one before joining the UFC, so obviously, as you can see, once he joined the UFC, that 14-1 and one record trickled down to what, now he's 20-10. and 10. Um, 90% of his losses are by decision. Interesting little stat, right? So 90% of the time when he loses, it's by decision. 44% of the time when he wins, it's via finish. So decent finish rate when he's winning. His average length of fights for when he's winning a fight just under 11 minutes. His average length of fights when he loses a fight, just under 14 minutes. So more or less, he tends to go two and a half, three rounds in his fights, whether he wins or loses. So tends to go in the distance, shows good cardio, patient fighter, likes to work from the outside, doesn't like to grapple too much. He can grapple, he can wrestle, has a good wrestling background as we talked about, but um, doesn't really use that very much when he's actually fighting in the octagon. His most notable wins, or his biggest win, he beat Robert Whitaker. Now, it was a split decision win, 2013, so gosh, almost nine years ago, but still... Still nothing. It's something on his resume. Um, it matters. Now, he fought some notable guys. He lost to Sean Strickland in 2017 via decision. So going the full distance with Sean Strickland is not easy. Strickland's a tough dude. He also went sp- split decision loss against Diego Lima in 2019 and lost by decision in 2019 to Sean Brady. So decent level opponents, much harder level of opponents than Ramiz Brahimaj has faced. For Brahimaj, probably Max Griffin is his toughest opponent so far. Um, so more about Court McGee. The things I like about him, he's clearly a UFC veteran. 19th UFC fight coming up compared to Rahimash fighting his second UFC fight, right? Or, I'm sorry, his third. Um, active fighter. So even at his age of, what, 37 here, he's still averaging two fights a year. He's coming off of a decision winner against Claudio Silva. And Silva, at one point, was 14-0. Now he's 14-2. But Silva's a pretty good prospect. So it was a nice quality win there for McGee by decision. Now, the concerns I have on McGee. 37 years old. He's eight years older than his opponent. He was never the qu- the quickest guy, never was the most fleet of foot. At this age, I'm noticing a slowdown. Maybe I'm looking for it because I see he's older, 37. I'm noticing he's slow to the, the response at times. The guy who's jabbing him, he's just not meeting that guy halfway. He's a little slow. He's responding slow. And he never was a quick guy. So I think that's going to be a problem here against a, 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 you know, a quicker, younger fighter, eight years younger than Ramiz. Um, He's 5-9 and nine in his last uh, 15... I'm sorry, that would be 14 fights, right? That's not 15 fights. He's 5-9 and nine in his last 14 fights. Yeah, right. Kind of interesting. So again, Court McGee, you know, he was 20-10 and 10 at one point. He's 20-10 and 10 overall, and he was, what, 14-1 and one at some point, some point like that. But he's been 5-9 and nine in his last uh, 14 fights. So kind of on a rough patch. 
definitely losing more than winning right now. His winning percentage has gone way down. He's won in three in his last four fights. He hasn't had back-to-back wins since about 10 years ago, 2013, okay? Here he is coming off of a win. So will he break that, you know, that trend? He hasn't had back-to-back wins in, like I said, about eight, nine years. Now, um, he went three years between his last two wins, which is also something to consider. So again, his last four fights, he's won in three, had a three-fight losing streak in there. He went three years between his last two wins. So again, you know, just hasn't been on a very good winning rate recently. He ducks his head very often. It's very pronounced when he's throwing hard right hands. So if you imagine he's in a normal stance, he's a right-handed fighter. He's throwing the big looping right hand. He ducks his head, that typical like wrestling, no technique, you know, punching. Don't look at your, uh, you know, your your um, your target. Just duck your head and just throw in overhead uh, punches. He does that often. That could be a problem against anybody. I'm not sure if Ramiz is going to be quick enough or sharp enough to to counter that. Uh, but he's reckless with the way he throws some of his punches. And his boxing technique is, it, it's there. There's some things about it that are good. He's got a boxing background, but at times he gets tired. He gets a little sloppy. Um, his power significantly dips down as the fight goes on. Now, is that age? Is that just because of cardio? Is it because the fights I've watched that it just it's noticeable? It's just once the first round is over, I don't see him posing much of a threat to knock out Ramiz. And if Ramiz knows that, he could take more chances, look for takedowns, look to get the fight where he wants it. Now, as for Ramiz Brahamaj. Four and two at LFA prior to joining the UFC, so had some LFA experience. He's one and one in the UFC. It'll be the third UFC fight. He is a submission expert. The guy has nine wins, right? All nine wins are by submission. 66% of his losses are via decision. So when he's losing, it's usually by decision. 100% of his wins are by submission, as we just talked about. His average length of his fight when he wins is two minutes and 12 seconds. So when he's winning by submission, it's usually pretty quick. It ends pretty quickly. He gets his you know back back control or something of that nature and finishes the fight pretty quickly. Now, average length of fight in his losses, 14 minutes and one second. So that's notable. For Court McGee, if Court McGee wants to win the fight, drag this thing to the third round. The later he brings the fight here for Ramiz, it brings it more into the wheelhouse of him possibly pulling off a win. Now, as we talked about for Court McGee, his average length of fights for both winning or losing, it's still in the what, 10, 11, 12-minute range. But for, again, here's a fighter where when he's winning, it's two minutes. When he's losing, it's 14 minutes. So you can see the big disparity there for Ramiz. If the fight gets into round two, look to live bet, possibly on Court McGee. All right, now, most notable opponents here for Ramiz, Max Griffin, the fight where he got his ear basically torn off. He got technically finished in that fight because it is an ear injury, whatever, but he's actually never been finished, okay? So that he did lose in that fight. It does count as a technical finish, whatever, but he's never been finished. His biggest wins of his career, he beat Sasha Palotnikov, rear one, I'm sorry, rear one, round one rear naked choke in 2021. He actually put Sasha Palotnikov to sleep. Uh, Palotnikov is a tough Russian fighter. Um, it was a nice win, but also reminder, Ramiz has not fought really anyone. Um, that's the highest level, um, him and Max Griffin, that he's fought. Now, some things I like about Brahamaj. He's an active fighter, fighting about 1.8 fights per year. Um, he's never technically been finished, as I mentioned before, so he's pretty durable. Excellent wrestler, heavy on top, looks for submissions. He's got a low, you know, sort of fighting approach, the way he changes levels excellently. It's smooth, it's natural for him. He's got a solid chin against Max Griffin. He took kind of a beating there when he got his ear ripped off and took a lot of facial damage, but showed that, you know, he's durable. You know, he showed that he could take a punch. Um, and side note, he had like a tumor, man. The guy had a tumor behind his eye at one point. It was right at the beginning of his career. He was about to fight his first UFC fight. Goes for a physical. It shows him in a physical. Ends up being like, you know, surgery, the whole deal. He recovers from all that. Eventually now he's, you know, fighting the UFC. But the guy's been through a lot. He's definitely battle-tested. Been through a lot in real life, you know. So a lot of qualities about Ramiz I like outside the octagon. Um, 
He's going to have, obviously, a significant youth advantage. He should have the bigger gas tank. He should have a little more quickness. He should be stronger, more powerful than clinch, um, more powerful than ground. should be the better wrestler. Um, in every which way, I think you're going to see the age disadvantage there. The for concerns Courtney. I have with Ramiz Brahamaj, very low level of competition, just has not fought anyone outside of Max Griffin and Sasha Palotnikov compared to Court McGee, who's fought in much better competition. That's just the bottom line. And he's going to be in his third UFC fight compared to McGee, who's in what 19th UFC fight. So just obvious point of concern. Um, inconsistent of lately for Ramiz Bahamaj. So at one point he was 6-0. and He had an undefeated amateur record. Then he loses two LFA fights against fighters that are, let's just say, not UFC level. Um, and he's 3-3 three and three in his last six fights. So clearly right now a 500-level fighter in his last six fights. It is a bit of a concern. He needs to get himself on a more of a winning streak if he's going to make a real run here. Um, he is young enough, obviously, only 27 years old, but still, been inconsistent lately, so not the kind of, I'm sorry, 29 years old, not the kind of fighter where you have a lot of confidence in him, and at the age of 29, he's going to have to get moving here, right? So, low-volume striker, so you can see based upon his numbers, he's, again, absorbing a lot more strikes than he's dishing out, and that's just the way he fights. He looks to wrestle, looks to grapple, he gives up position sometimes for submission attempts, that's his wheelhouse, again, all nine wins are by submission, but again, his boxing game, his striking game, not wonderful. Uh, the fights we looked at to break down this film were Brahamash versus Palatnikov, Brahamash versus Griffin, McGee versus Silva, and McGee versus Condit. Those four links and those four fights are in the description if you want to watch those yourself. Now, just some more notes here on the two fighters side by side. Again, I mentioned I'm giving the experience advantage and the IQ advantage to Court McGee. I'm going to give them equal ratings on cardio. Finishing-wise, there is a slight advantage there for Brahamash because he does have this nine, you know, nine finishes and all nine wins. But again, some of those were against lower-level opponents, not guys that you would technically consider very good. And God bless Sasha Plotnikov, but Sasha Plotnikov made a big mistake in that fight, got the rear one naked choke, you know, loss. Um, I want to see Bra Ramiz Brahamash do that against higher-level opponents, guys like Court McGee that's a little bit step up. This by far will be Brahamash's biggest, te biggest test. This and Max Griffin are pretty much equal, right? So I, I guess he is. It's about the same thing as Max Griffin, right? So... Uh, we'll find out more about, about Ramiz after this fight. So looking at their boxing ability, you know, Court McGee is definitely the better boxer, but he's not an amazing boxer. So that's another thing to consider. Like he's got boxing skills, I guess. And Ramiz does not have the best boxing skills. So there should be an advantage on the feet for Court McGee. But at times, Court McGee gets tired, gets sloppy, and it you know, loses technique. For grappling, that's the one area Ramiz is going to have a big advantage here in the grappling exchanges, in the, in the submission attempts, um, on the ground, wrestling. He's going to be stronger, quicker, more powerful, younger, bigger gas tank, should have more energy. I'm um, expect him to win those exchanges and put McGee in situations where you have to at least defend against some submission attempts. So when you break this down side by side, it is very close. The money line is minus 110, so it's a pick him, true pick him. It's been that way since it opened. I like Ramiz to win the fight. I like the fight not going the distance at plus 120. Um, that prop is available. Now, I don't have the prop for Ramiz to win by submission. That's a prop that I'm definitely going to hit. But for him just to finish the fight inside the distance at any point, it's plus 275. So imagine the submission prop would be around plus 300 to minus plus 350-ish. Very good prop to consider. Again, all nine wins are by submission, right? Um, anyway, that's the breakdown for this fight, guys. It is a tough one to call. If you like Court McGee, I totally understand it. He is the veteran, has more experience. Ramiz has definitely far from proven himself. Um, I think training-wise... I would give a slight edge to Ramiz, Brahamaj. Pit Elevated is a good gym, but Fortis is a really good gym, and Brahamaj has really ingratiated himself there with the team. He's very well-liked. He, he also helps coach. He corners a lot of fighters when he's not fighting. Um, seems to be a very mature young man. 
he took the whole situation with his ear falling off basically in that fight with Matt Griffin. You know, um, he took it well, recovered the whole nine. Um, he's ready to get back in there. This will be his first fight, you know, since beating Sasha Plotnikoff, his first fight in 2022. Just seems to me like it's lining up for this guy to get himself in a bit of a run here, get back-to-back wins, get, get some w- wins in the win column. With that said, that's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight if you're betting on it. And uh, if you're not betting on it just watching it, I understand that too because it's kind of risky here. We just don't know enough about Ramiz. What we do know about Court McGee is the guy's a tough SOB and not somebody you want to bet against in the octagon or in life, right? That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. The next fight in the car is going to be a bantamweight bout between the American Brian Kelleher and Said Yakub Kakrahmanov from Uzbekistan. That's a mouthful. Kakrahmanov is nine and two overall, three and two. I'm sorry, four and one in his last five fights. Twenty six years old, five eight in height with sixty nine inch reach. He's out of Team Oyama. As for Brian Kelleher, the UFC veteran, he goes by Boom. He's 23-12 and 12 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. Born in Selden, New York. Shout out to my New York people. I'm from New York. 35 years old. 5-6 in height with 64-inch reach. He's out of Long Island MMA, which is a very good gym with several UFC fighters. Now, according to Tapology, looks like Kakramanov is the favorite. Getting 69% of the votes, only 31% of the votes coming in for Kelleher. I like Kakramanov, you know, but I'm going to caution people about this fight here. It's his second UFC fight for Kakramanov. He came in four days' notice in his last fight. Yes, he won third round. You know, uh, guillotine choke, very impressive. But Kelleher is a scrappy dude. He's an overachiever. He's always going to be a guy. He's going to give you three rounds. He's not an easy out, not easy to finish. So there is some trepidation here for me. Though I like Kakrachmanov. I think he's got a, the potential to be a very good fighter, like a, a long-standing fighter in the UFC. There's still a lot of questions. So I'm going to side with Kakrachmanov right off the bat, tell you I'd like him to win the fight. Let's talk about more about the numbers here. For Brian Keller, he's landing 3.63 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.72. Not a good ratio, obviously, absorbing more than he's dishing out. For Kakramanov, much better, landing 2.46 strikes per minute, absorbing only 0.82, less than one strike per minute. Now, granted, it's a small sample size, but still good numbers. Take down offense. Now, Brian Kelleher, in some of his prior fights, okay, like against Pilarte, for example, he out-wrestles Pilarte for three rounds, gets an easy win, 30-27 on all three judges' scorecards on every single round. He out-wrestles Pilarte. He looks like the best wrestler in the world. Against Ricky Simone, not so much. He got out-wrestled. He looked like he was scrambling for his life. And so with Brian Kelleher, in this particular fight here, I don't think he out-wrestles Kakramanov. Kakramanov is a very good, like, Uzbekistan, prototypical wrestler, shorter, stockier, the guy came in four days notice in his last fight and got a guillotine choke in round three. It just kind of gives you a glimpse of how talented he is. So even if Kelleher wants to wrestle him, now he puts himself in a situation where he's going to probably get submitted, or at least submission attempts will be coming his way. For takedown offense, Kelleher's landing 1.28 takedowns per 15 minutes. For Kakramanov, two takedowns per 15 minutes. So similar range, but a little more productive productivity there, excuse me, for Kakramanov. Takedown defense, Kelleher at 59%. Kakramanov, 87%. Now, again, when Kelleher fought against a guy like Ricky, Ricky Simone, he couldn't defend takedowns. He got taken down easily left and right. So versus Kakramanov, I think it's going to be similar. I'm not sure that Kakramanov is better or worse of a wrestler than Ricky Simone. Now, looking at the notes here on the two fighters, for Kelleher first, like I mentioned, he grew up in Selden, New York. He was a multi-sport athlete, like played hockey, basketball, the whole damn different thing. Got into mixed martial arts after high school. He went pro in 2011. Had a 4-3 amateur career. And that, to me, popped out. I had to note that. Like, this guy is an overachiever. And I mean that in the most respectful of ways. Like, here's he's like a Forrest Gump. He's the kind of guy where he has gone further and, and higher than most people would have probably expected this guy. I mean, how tall is Brian Kelleher? We went over his size earlier, right? Brian Kelleher is like, what, 
five foot four, five foot five, five six on a good day. Smaller guy, got the Napoleon complex, always being smaller. But it doesn't come off that way. Just a greedy mofo, a guy who's earning his contract. Maybe some people argue probably not UFC material. And I would just argue, listen, the guy is overachiever. I like that part about him. That's how he can win this fight. You see, he is an overachiever. He is a scrappy guy. He will win a round he shouldn't win. He'll absorb a few shots. He'll take whatever's dished out to him, and he'll keep moving forward. Looking at some stats on him, for example, this, this sort of proves what I'm saying. He was 0-2 in Bellator, and he was 4-4 in CFFC, FFC. Yeah, he's in UFC. So here's a guy, again, 0-2 in Bellator, 4-4, 500 record in CFFC, but yeah, he's in the UFC where he's 7-5 overall. Not the worst of records in UFC. If some guys out there were like 0-3 records, 0-2, 0-4, 1-4 of things. He's 7-5, positive record in the UFC. So again, overachiever. He fought in some good promotions before he got into the UFC. His biggest wins are against Domingo Pilarte via decision last year and Ode Osborne via a guillotine choke in round one. So not house, like not top-notch names, but still household names, people you recognize. The positives like about Kelleher. He's coming off of a dominating 30-27 win over Pilarte. A lot of confidence, right? He won every single round, took no damage. He's probably feeling the best version of himself, right? Now, he probably won't be able to get to out-wrestle Kakramanov, but again, if he has to wrestle, I'm thinking in his head he should thinking oh, I, can, I can control at least some of the situation. I won't get overwhelmed, though I do think Kakramanov will overwhelm him the wrestling. Active fighter, he's averaging 3.4 fights per year. That's Kelleher, so very active. I mean, almost three and a half fights per year. He's had nine submission wins in his record. I noticed that, and I was like, wow, okay. So Kelleher, you don't think of him as a submission guy, but yes, nine submission wins. He wins almost half of his fights, um, 43% to be exact, by submission. At the same time, interesting stat on him, he loses 50% of his fights by submission. <laughs> okay, so kind of a weird flip-flop. He wins almost half his fight by submission, loses about half his fights by submission as well. So quality losses. He lost against Cody Stamen via decision 2020, Ricky Simone by decision 2021, Again, by decision, which goes towards his durability. I think Brian Keller is a very durable fighter. Though he has been finished, he's a scrappy guy. He just has that. He's the kind of guy, like, you want to have a beer with, man. Like, he's a scrappy dude, all-American, you know, pie, blue-collar dude. Um, you know, just gives, gives that vibe. He's a tough dude. You know, he's going to go three rounds. He'll take you to the full extent of the fight, right? He's a solid wrestler. Again, there's a caveat there. I think he's a, be he's a good wrestler against guys that are not very good in wrestling, like Pilarte. Yet, then when he fights against guys against, like Ricky Simone, it's a little bit different, and he gets overwhelmed. So, this wrestling game is good. It just may not work against elite-level wrestlers or guys who can defend the takedowns that he attempts. He's had a good finish rate. He's finished four of his last six fights in Kelleher. So, looking at the concerns I have on Kelleher, or the cons, pros versus cons. Here's the cons. He's three-fight losing streak between Bellator and CFFC. I, I thought that was noticeable. So, going back in his topology, he lost three straight fights between Bellator and UFC. And he is 0-2 in Bellator. You know, and 4-4 four and four in TFC. So it wasn't like he was lighting that up before he came to the UFC. Again, overachiever, overachiever. His submission defense is not amazing. He's been submitted five times. Inconsistent is the best, is the best way of putting his most recent fight history. He's 4-4 four and four in his last eight fights. He's basically a 500-level fighter in the UFC. Okay, that's not the worst thing in the world, but it just kind of puts it in context. Kakrachmanov is coming in here. A little bit of fire under his ass. The guy's got some potential, submission ability. It seems to me like it's a good matchup for Kel for for, for Kakramanov that he gets a guy like, you know, Keller who's ultimately becoming a gatekeeper in the UFC. Now, he comes up short against top level talent. That's Kelleher. So for example, some Ricky Simone lost that fight by decision two thousand twenty one. Stamen lost that fight two thousand twenty. Montel Jackson, two thousand eighteen, got rear naked choked in round one. John Lineker, rear, uh, round three TKO loss two thousand eighteen. 
Marlon Vera, 2017, rear naked uh, uh, submission loss in round one, 2017. So notable names, you know, Marlon Vera, John Lineker, Montel Jackson, Stamen, and, and Simone, he lost those fights. So against higher-level competition, Brian Kelly, that is, kind of comes up short, has a hard time. And against Ricky Simone, again, if you watch that fight, the link's in the description, you can see that he gets completely out-wrestled by a guy just stronger, more powerful, more explosive than he is. Kelleher's wrestling is good against average fighters. It doesn't really seem to work against elite-level guys. Now, Seed Yokub Kakrabanov, let's talk about him. So he's from Uzbekistan. His last fight, he's literally in Uzbekistan, gets the phone call, has four days from the time of the phone call to get his ass out to Vegas to fight against Trevin Giles. He goes in there and wins by a rear naked, or I'm sorry, by a guillotine choke in round three. Super impressive, amazing debut. After the fight, he talks to DC and he's like, yeah, you know, DC was like, oh, are you surprised about this win? Are you amazed at, you know, the outcome, you know, coming here four days notice? And he was like, no, nah, this is like kind of normal to me. It's what I expected. Had this like, you know, Khabib Nurmagomedov swag about him where it was like, oh, no big deal, man. This is a walking park. It's what I do every day. So kudos to him to come out there in short notice. But there were some times in that fight where he didn't look amazing. And I felt at times that if, if if Giles had been better, like if he had been more on top of his game, if he had better cardio, I'm sorry, Trevin Jones, I keep saying Giles, excuse my French there, not my French, but excuse my mispronunciation of the name, it's Trevin Jones. Against Trevin Jones, um, he simply, you know, at times was not very active on his back, on the ground, losing grappling exchanges, which is weird because he seems to be a better grappler than Trevin Jones is, and he did win by submission, but at times he looked tired, um, there was questions about his weight. He missed weight coming to the fight. Obviously, last last minute notice. You understand it, a little bit of an excuse, but still, a lot of questions. I think Trevin Jones, he may have lost that fight more than more than Kakramanov won the fight. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, good win for Kakramanov. Very surprising win, but it doesn't tell us a lot about this guy. Like he's lost to Umar Nurmagomedov. That was an impressive loss. It was by decision. Umar Nurmagomedov is an undefeated 13-0 Russian fighter. Very very good. Obviously coming from the Dagestani Khabib clan. Um, lost by a flying knee to Pipe Vargas, round three, 2019, just two years ago. Um, that's not great. Pipe Vargas is an okay fighter. He's 7-1. and one, but So, you know, we just don't know a lot about um, Yokub. He's, he's a guy where it's a lot of just up in the air. We just don't know about him. Now, all right, let's move on to some more notes on, on him. So, I do like the fact he's active. He's averaging two and a half fights per year. That's Kakramanov. He's an elite grappler. His submission rate's very high. So he wins his fight almost half the time by submission. 44% of the time when he wins a fight, it's by submission. For Kelleher, he's going to have to be on defense the entire time, looking for submission attempts against him. Um, he's fought decent competition outside the UFC. So notably, he fought against um, Asgar Asgar in 2020 in HFC and also against Umar Nurmagomedov in the PFL 2018. So decent competition even outside the UFC. He's younger by nine years. It's That's got to be pointed out here. This is not the heavyweight division. It's the bantamweight division. Kelleher is 35 years old. I give Kelleher two more years. 37-year-old Kelleher, he's done in the UFC. Um, not because he's a terrible fighter. This is not a division where at 37, 38, 39, you're hanging around doing good things. So bottom line is at 26 years old, nine years a junior, there is going to be a benefit there. In the last fight, Kakramanov showed decent cardio in round three, got the finish in round three against Trevin Jones. This is a fight where he has the full camp. Um, coming here with some momentum, I, I expect him to be the quicker, stronger, um, more gas in the gas tank in round three, that type of thing here against Keller, who's older. Now, uh, looking at my concerns on Kakramanov, he did miss weight in his last fight. You have to acknowledge that. Now, it was last-minute notice, but if he were to miss weight, for example, in this fight, 
huge red flag. You're like, oh my God, the guy's had a weight issue because he missed two fights in a row with weight. But I expect him to make weight. But just something just to keep an eye on. He tends to give up position for submission. So against Trevin Jones, for example, when you watch that fight, Kakramanov will chase a guillotine choke and pull guard. And it's like at times, you know, he doesn't get it, obviously. It doesn't happen all the time, which is okay. But you end up in your back. And so at times in that fight, like his arms got tired. He was on his back. He was chasing guillotine chokes, pulling guard. I don't love that. That's partly maybe because he has too much confidence in his submission game, partly because he's very young and he's just still learning the whole MMA fight game. But I'd rather not see him give a position for submission attempts. The natural submissions will come when he works positive wrestling, gets together on the ground, works position opportunities for him. But by just chasing submissions on your feet and giving up guard, never been a fan of that, okay? He got knocked out by a flying knee by Pipe Vargas in 2019. Now, is that a flash knockout or is that a sign that maybe he's got a chin? We just don't know. The sample size is small. 11 total fights, only one UFC-level fight, came in last noted, looked really good, but this guy could be the flavor of the month. He could be the hottest guy right now where it's like, oh, we like him a lot, minus 55 in the money line, it looks good. Slam that, and then all of a sudden he comes in here and gets beat by the veteran Brian Keller, who just uses veteran savvy. So at minus 155 on the money line, I like Kakramanov a lot. He's probably one of the top three or four favorites for me on the entire card. I am sold on him. After dishing out all that stuff about my, my doubts and whatever else, I am sold on Kakramanov. I do believe he's an elite-level grappler. I believe in the grappling exchanges, if the fight goes to the ground, it's going to be survival mode for Kelleher. Avoiding submission attempts, trying not to get out position. Kelleher, you know, for all five foot six of him, tough as dude. Gives up two inches in height here. Gives up five inches in reach. You know, he's a tough guy, but man, the, the rubber beats the road, right? That's a phrase. And at this point here, against a young up and coming prospect, I think Kelleher loses this fight. And if he can survive three rounds and lose on decision, that's sort of a subliminal win. It's like a sort of a, what do they call it? Um, what kind of a win? Oh. A moral victory, right? Which don't really count for anything because it not really wins. But anyway, moral victory for him would be decision loss here against Kakramanov. For Kakramanov, an ultimate win for him would be by submission beating Kelleher, finishing the fight. I think that's set up for him here. So at minus 155, I, I'm going to say Kakramanov will be one of my top tickets on my parlay. And I'm going to take him straight up. I'll take him at least for a unit and a half to, to match that out to make sure I get $100 back on my winnings. I like Kakramanov. Good luck in this fight. If you disagree or have a different read in this fight, please comment in the description. Let me know what you think. I like Kelleher. If anyone from the Brian Kelleher fan hears this, you know, or Brian Kelleher, excuse me, my, my uh, mispronunciation, uh, clan hears about this breakdown and thinks, oh, man, I'm Brian Kelleher hater. No, no, no. Mad respect for the guy. Very durable. Tough SOB. But I think Kakramanov gets the best of him here. Gets more takedown time, more position control eventually maybe gets his admission so I like how coming off. Good luck with this one guys. Come on.